You may be seated. So my name is uh, Tim Barker. I'm one of the, the pastors here uh, at Seven Mile Road in Melrose, and it's my uh, enjoy, enjoyable task today to be able to speak with you from the Word of God and open up this passage to you. Uh, my wife Katie and I live in Melrose. Uh, we've been here for a number of years, and we are uh, part of the Bellevue Gospel Community Group. Uh, that's what I spend a lot of my time with as a pastor, is loving and leading uh, gospel community groups, but uh, really excited for the time uh, to spend in the Word this morning. So as I was kind of reflecting and thinking about <clears throat> what we do in this time together of preaching, I was thinking about kind of the neediness in society that we see so much of, right? There's such awareness of a needy people all around us. We're aware of our nation that is considerably needy. We have so many needs on ourselves, and there's so much of this that comes at us that it may seem really foreign and strange for us to come in here into this big room, sit together, and be quiet, and actually listen to someone say something to you. It feels really weird. Like, why would I do that? There's so many voices, so many clamoring, so many opportunities for us to raise our voice, to come and sit still and listen. It feels so strange, distant, and foreign to us. And yet, as I was reflecting and thinking about what we do in this time, we actually get a really good opportunity to hear a good word. As we sit still and we hear these words together, it's not my words per se, it's not that you need to hang on my every word, but through the preached word, God's voice is heard. God speaks to us as one with authority, as one who knows and has answers for us and our neediness. So as we think about our time together and sitting quietly and kind of reflecting on all the things that are happening, it's not that God is joining us for the sound bites that we're subjected to in society. It's not as if we're in a dialogue, like we listen politely, nod our heads while God is done, and then we're going to get our counterpoint in. No, we sit back and we hear what God has to say about our needs, and he addresses us. So with that mindset, if we can kind of humbly think about what God is going to say to us in our time together, let's look longingly for him to speak to us during this time. Let's pray together to that end. God, we crave a word from you. God, we know we are weak We are needy. There are so many voices in our heads, on the TV, on the radio, through all of our friends and families and people we know and coworkers. God, so many things calling for our attention. But God, we pray during this time we would hear only from you, that your voice would be heard from this text of Scripture, and it would change us, that our neediness would be met with your answer. We ask that expectantly and humbly. Amen. So if you thought about what truly makes somebody important, like in our society, we're really interested in equality, equity, fairness, that we're all on the same playing field. That's true, but there's still importance. You ever notice that? We really think around this person is more important than this other person. There's people who are actually extraordinary, and then there's the rest of us are kind of ordinary. We think about how... Um, movie stars, celebrities, the famous, the powerful are really important people and we want to know everything about them. They have so many Twitter followers. Okay? But then we also have rock stars and we have athletes and we have all these people that we clamor to as important. And we look to them, not only to celebrate them and all the excitement in their life and all these great things, but we also go to these important people for comparison. Like, do I measure up to this person? Am I a little bit like that guy? Am I funnier than this person? Do I have looks like that? I mean, how many people have done that ridiculous Facebook thing where you get, like, signed up and look like a a celebrity? How much do I look like them? There's all this important pull that we have in our lives because there's still this belief in the important. There's still, there's other people that we want to be like, and there's a point of comparison that we come to. 
So this morning, I want to come from a place to talk to you about really who is one of the most important people of the Bible and history that you've probably never stopped to think about. Now, hear me on this. Here's my superlative, okay? I'm not saying it's the most important person in the world. I'm not saying that it's a person you've never heard of. I'm going to give you this breaking out of someone that you've never heard of in the background of of some major story. Nothing like that. I'm coming to a person of the Bible that you probably haven't paused to think about and really seen the significance of what that person means. That's the person in the text that Tracy had read to us about Melchizedek. Funny name, we'll get to it, but that's the guy we're talking about, Melchizedek. An important person, significant in the history of the world and means something for us today. So this morning, my aim is, from the pages of Scripture, to tell you who Melchizedek was so everybody in the room knows who that person is and help you know why that matters to us in 2018, sitting in a room just north of Boston, because it does matter. So let's get into the first part. Before we get really into the sermon itself, we need to really do some work and talk about who this guy Melchizedek was. So there's his name. You have it in the Scripture in front of you if you're looking at the text as well. So let's tell you the story of Melchizedek. So in the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, there is the patriarch, the leader of the nation of Israel. His name is Abraham. This individual is a historical person of great significance that all of Israel finds their their tracing back to in the Jewish people. He's actually a significant person in three of the major world faiths, right? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Abraham is present in each of these faiths. This guy's a big deal. And we have in this scene... Uh, a really interesting point where Abraham is a follower of God and he truly is a worshiper of the true God of the Bible. Now you might ask why I have the, well, how I can make that claim. How can I be so certain that this is the God of the Bible that Abraham is worshiping? And why is that a significance? I'd love to talk to you about that. We can grab some coffee, go through it at any point you like. Hope you come back some other Sundays we can talk through it. But if you're not sure about that, just suspend judgment for now. And let's think about the story as it presents itself. Just suspend judgment on how do we know this is the real true God? Let's just assume he is for the sake of argument and then follow through with our story and think about how uh, the story is told to us about this God of the Bible. So you have this great patriarch Abraham and all of Israel is going to come from him. All these faiths revere him and look to him and he's a worshiper of the true God. So you get to chapter 14 of the book of Genesis and we read some details that are pretty different from our culture and time. So it takes a little bit of explaining. So there are these kings in an area around the Dead Sea in modern day Israel And believe it or not, they're having a fight in the Middle East over natural resources. Shocking, I know, shocking, okay? So this goes all the way back to the the second millennia, going back to 2000 BC-ish, and they're still fighting about natural resources in the Middle East. Not surprising, right? Some small-time kings end up making this alliance, and they're going to go and raid this place that has these natural resources. And they're going to have this big battle, and they're going to steal a bunch of stuff, take the resources. And you know what? While we're at it, let's just take a bunch of people with us too. And one of the people they, bring, they take with them is Abraham's nephew, Lot. Significant turn in the story. Word gets back to Abraham about his nephew getting taken. Abraham kind of goes all Liam Neeson on him. You've seen Taken? All right. So he kind of, I have a special set of skills that I can use at this moment. I'll retrieve you. Just call out whatever you see and I'll be there. And okay. Long story short, much like the movies, Abraham gets back Lot. Enough said. We don't get a lot of detail, but it was probably a lot like Taken. He goes and he gets Lot and he brings him back and he gets all the stuff with him and he's on his way back 
to give the stuff back to the city that it was stolen from. He's got Lot. He's a happy, rich guy anyways. So, I mean, he's just going to fulfill the story and get it done. And then the story arc pauses. And this dude, Melchizedek, shows up on the scene. Strange name. Out of nowhere. Here he is. What is this guy, Melchizedek? Well, the text tells us he's a king of a place called Salem. Salem is likely to be the area we know today as Jerusalem, and that is the city of peace, that, that place of importance for the nation of Israel. And Melchizedek's name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. So you have Melech means king, Sadiq means righteousness, so he's pretty much the king or my king of righteousness. Again, an interesting name. And we're told about him, not only that he's a king, but he's a priest. So you have this king who's a priest guy hanging out in the Dead Sea that shows up strangely after, you know, uh, Abraham has this kind of Navy SEAL raid to get back his nephew, and there he is. Interesting. And he's not just any priest. He's a priest of the Most High God, the El Elyon of the Bible, the God of the Bible. And Melchizedek is actually the first priest mentioned in the Bible. So let's read these words from Genesis chapter 14. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God the Most High, parentheses, lest you miss that. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this encounter with Melchizedek, if you're wondering if there's more, there's not. It's three verses long in Genesis. That's all we have of this guy. He shows up in the scene for three verses. And what does he do? He brings out some bread and wine, the customary hospitality steps of the time. It's not a bad way to show hospitality now either. And, you know, that's what he does. He blesses Abraham as he got back from this crazy battle. Here, have some wine, have some bread. Let me come out and nourish you. And then he gets about his work as a priest. He does priestly stuff. You know, he comes out and he blesses Abram. He says, okay. Let me bless you. This is good. Good stuff's going to happen. Let's go forward. Showing that he is a functioning true priest. And then Abraham acknowledges this true priesthood of Melchizedek by giving him a tithe. He gives him 10% of, of the stuff that he's received. Acknowledging that this is God's man doing God's work and I approve of him. So let me, let me give him this tithe. He's legitimate. This is his only appearance in the book of Genesis. These three verses in chapter 14. And actually, he's only mentioned one other time in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. He shows up in the psalm that Matt opened our our service with, talking about Psalm 110. This is a thousand years, roughly, after this time when Abraham, Abraham met him. About a thousand years later, David records the name of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, so we get this, is a very significant psalm in the theology of the Messiah. It's critical for all of us and our Jewish friends and neighbors to know exactly what is happening in this psalm. It points to, in the Hebrew Bible, the longing, the looking for this Messiah King who would come. And it helps us to understand and identify that Messiah as Jesus. The New Testament quotes from the psalm more than any other part of the Hebrew Bible because it's so significant. And in it, the Lord God is speaking to someone else who can be called Lord as well. So the Lord says to his Lord. Who who is the second Lord? It's one of the biggest puzzles of Old Testament times to try to figure out. God is speaking to someone else who can also be called Lord. And the second Lord, whoever he is, is clearly royal. He's a king. 
He sits at the right hand of God. He is indicated as ruling. He has a scepter. His people, are, he has a constituency of some kind. Then we come to these shocking words in the verse 4 of Psalm 110. Let's look at those together here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of, oh yeah, that crazy strange guy in Genesis 14, Melchizedek. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A thousand years later, this obscure character from Genesis is mentioned out of the mouth of David in Psalm 110. Okay, you might start to get a little interested. What, What is the big deal about this? Now, these words are not only strange because this is an obscure character, There's also some shocking words on the screen. Take a good look. Not jumping off the page to you? That's okay. You can be forgiven, okay? It's not too bad. I'll help you out. Here are the three shocks that come out of this, all right? Kings aren't priests. But this verse is saying that this king guy is going to be a priest. What's up with that? You can't do that. It's shocking, okay? I'm told, I've told you Melchizedek was a priest and a king, so you're already desensitized. You're like, yeah, it's no, no big deal. This guy Melchizedek was one. He's the only one. He's the exception. So when you think about what's happening here, the whole nation of Israel and all the teachings of the Old Testament were prescribing that there is no connection between the office of a king and the office of a priest. In fact, when the first king of Israel, King Saul, functioned as a priest in 1 Samuel 13 by offering sacrifices instead of waiting for the priest, he's told, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Shots fired. You know what I mean? This is, this is like a big deal. He broke the, the plan. This is not how a king is supposed to function. The kings and priests are two totally different uh, offices. Then he talks about this being a per- forever priest. But priests aren't forever. They're humans. No priests last forever. We've seen them all the time. They live a few years. They die off. We get another one. That's how priests work. And not only that, let's just talk about it like the, the priesthood of Israel. Uh, you know, it was kind of like the saga of intrigue and there's all kinds of like like daggers and backstabbing and fighting for who was actually going to be the priest. It's only really superseded by the British monarchy, to be entirely honest. It's a story of injury. You can't believe, oh, there's going to be another priest. Who's going to fight to be the priest? Are you the real priest? Maybe we should have a different one. The idea that one priest would be a priest forever is, is crazy. There'd be no way. Lastly, there's a different order of priests involved here. So think of this. Most of the priests in the Old Testament that we hear about of any kind are what we can consider Aaronic priests. They come from Aaron, the brother of Moses, and kind of his descendant line. We think of then the tribe of Levi, the Levites, throughout your Old Testament scriptures. They're described as the priestly class, order that's there together. This idea of order is kind of like in the Catholic Church. You think about uh, Dominicans and Franciscans. There's an order to it. There's a way, there's rules, there's a way you get there. This is what you do. It's that kind of use of the word order. So you kind of have that as a frame of reference culturally. And we're saying that this is a totally different one. So the Old Testament only knows one order, and here we have a different order being presented, one after the order of Melchizedek that isn't in the line. So this is kind of strange. I mean, that's putting it mildly. There's this obscure character from Genesis 14 who now shows up a thousand years later in Psalm 110, and he starts to become pretty significant. He's not mentioned actually again in the Bible, until Hebrews. In Hebrews, he comes up about a thousand years later again in the chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Hebrews. And there's this building, noticeable importance of Melchizedek until we get to this chapter 7 that we're looking at this morning. 
He's almost a forgotten character, and then he's dusted off for us in Hebrews 7. So what's his reason? Why does he dust off this character that we could have just left in there? I mean, three verses? There's all kinds of people in the Bible that have like three verses where they show up, and you probably don't know their names. You probably never give them a second thought. They don't get brought up again. This guy did. That's interesting. So why is that important? Well, as we've been going through our series on the book of Hebrews, we've talked about the whole book is about Jesus, seriously Jesus, okay? And really taking the time to ponder and get the significance of who he is. And so the author of Hebrews is making the point with Melchizedek to say, you can't know Jesus fully unless you get who Melchizedek is. So see the importance start to get ratcheted up to us today? He's not just some obscure character that you can kind of go, I don't remember his name, it's kind of funny, whatever. No, we're saying this guy gives you a picture of who Jesus is and what he's like. So that's the reason we're spending the time this morning to understand that more fully so we can get a full picture of who Jesus is because of looking at who Melchizedek was. So there's two questions that come for us out of Hebrews 7. These are the ones we're going to answer. What is the comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus? And secondly, why does this comparison matter to us? Right? That's important. All right? So if you've made it this far with me, all right, if you're a historical head, you're, you're loving this, right? We've got dates, other languages, primary sources. You are in. Now, if you're like into math and science and coding and, you know, real-world things that actually matter, then you're probably less interested in this right now, right? But for the historical minds, we're, we're into this. You're getting it. But what I'm telling all of us is hang with me right now because now we're getting to this, and there's a payoff for all of us at the end because we're going to see how this relates to Jesus and where we are. So you can kind of hold on what you've picked up from the historical part, but hang with me here through this comparison in Hebrews 7. So what is the comparison he's getting to? Chapter 7 covers the ground that we've already covered in reviewing Genesis 14. So Tracy read that for us. If you kind of heard it, it sounded a lot like how I maybe told the story. The Liam Neeson part wasn't in there, but, you know, it was kind of the same idea. Uh, kind of telling you that story. That's what Hebrews starts with. Then, Melchizedek isn't the focus, but it comes kind of squarely on Jesus to make this point of comparison. So the author of Hebrews brings up Melchizedek to get some points of similarity across between Jesus and Melchizedek. So what's this point, first point of comparison? Both of these people, Melchizedek and Jesus, number one, are both without geneolo genealogical heredity or progeny. Okay? So they didn't have their position of priesthood because of who their parents were or who they came from or anybody before them, right? It's not their heredity. But they also didn't have anyone like following them. There's nothing about their kids, nothing about them even dying and passing off the scene at any point. There's nothing that comes after them that's related to their importance. So that point of comparison is significant because that's unlike the priests of Israel, okay? These priests got their job in the Levites because of their family, their, their bloodline. That is what puts you in place to be a priest in the nation of Israel. But that's not Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek was before there were even Levites around, and yet he's a priest of God. Jesus, I mean, obviously he's God and man together. He's, he's not from that line. Even Mary's not from that line. She's, he's from the, the tribe of Judah is where Jesus is coming from. And yet... They can both be priests? That's surprising. So this points to a change in the priesthood. It's no longer about descendancy or who your parents were. It's depicted in, it, this is depicted in the narrative story of Melchizedek. He just appears on the scene, right? It's kind of odd. You have this raid, and then here shows Melchizedek up. Nothing about his parents, nothing about where he's from, how he fits in. He's just a priest serving God. That's strange. Why does that happen? 
So much of Genesis is about who one's parents are. So-and-so beget so-and-so, so-and-so beget so-and-so. And then you have this really important character just show up, no begetting and no begotten. No idea what's going on with this guy. He shows up on the scene. So what's important is, uh, about Melchizedek is that he isn't said to have either died in the story. He basically gives out, this bread and wine to G, uh, gives out the bread and wine to Abraham, blesses him, takes his 10%. We never hear from him again. It's very strange. Throughout Genesis, so many people are died, or die and go on to live with their fathers. They go to the grave. They continue. It's a big part of the cycle, and we're kind of seeing that piece of life and the passing from generation to generation. But instead, we get this picture of Melchizedek as if he's just continuing doing his priest thing forever. Like he's just doing it. You've seen him. That's what he's defined as in those three verses, and he continues to be a priest. Now, that might feel odd, right? In all of humanity, we're kind of used to people eventually dying, and they get done with their, their life, and they move on. So there would be every reason to believe that that's true of Melchizedek. But what's interesting is how it's told to us in the book of Genesis, the literary way it's presented. It's not uncommon for us to read in literature that a character doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end. It's not the strangest thing to read. There's usually a point, a significance that's being driven home to us. Now follow me yet. Let me, let me throw out Sherlock Holmes as our good example here. So any Sherlock Holmes fans, anyone into that? So you think about... Sherlock Holmes, and I'm talking about the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle series, just to be clear, not the BBC, not Elementary from CBS, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, all right? In those stories, Sherlock Holmes has no parents mentioned. There's no explanation of who his dad was, who his mom was. I mean, let's be clear, the BBC, CBS gets pretty interesting, no spoilers. But in the original stories, no parents, no explanation. It has nothing to do with the story. You just have, boom, Sherlock Holmes on the scene doing his thing. There's nobody like this guy. Interesting how he just does this, can solve things that no one else can. We, we appreciate that. We get the point in the literature. And then what about Sherlock Holmes' death? Have you looked at that? He has a apparent death in the story called The Final Problem, but we find out later he merely faked his death. You're used to that uh, common theme that we see in most stories nowadays, right? Happens a lot. Then Sherlock Holmes more or less retires, actually. He retires in the story called His Last Bow, and it ends with him and Watson kind of yet again fighting, uh, I think it's for the Great War, getting ready for uh, yet another mystery. And you kind of get the sense of Sherlock Holmes doesn't die. He just goes on doing what he's been always doing, right? Using his incredible, astute empirical skills and powers of observation and deduction to fight crime and bring justice to the world. It's a beautiful story. You get what he's doing. Similarly, Melchizedek functions literarily the very same way. He shows up on the scene, he functions as a priest, and the assumption of the reader is to say, and he just continues. It's, it's how it goes. I don't need to know anything about his death. I don't need to know anything about how, how he came to the scene. That's his whole point and function as a character. He's a flat character, if you will. He functions just to tell you what it's like to be another priest and to do it forever. So you can see the comparison that the author of Hebrews would want to make. Melchizedek, who suddenly appears and disappears from the pages of scriptures, depicts a sort of eternality of his office and practice as a priest. And this is comparable for Jesus, who functions as a priest forever, without end, not due to any heritage, but a distinct kind from other types of priests. So then quickly, what is the other kind of point of comparison that he's making? What is the other reason of comparison here? It's because both Melchizedek and Jesus have superiority and primacy over Abraham. So Melchizedek and Jesus are both superior to Abraham. This is a critical piece of what the author of Hebrews is trying to drive home to his audience. He depicts this in that tithe thing in verse 4. 
of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and he recounts that Genesis part about giving the 10%. This tithe is an indication of honor and that he has an understanding of what God asks of individuals. So it's, it's strange. Abraham, great Abraham, gives a tithe to this guy Melchizedek. So that's saying Melchizedek should be lifted up. Melchizedek should be noted as the one of honor. That's surprising. This is Abraham, the father of Israel. How could this be true? Remember, tithes usually went to Levites in the Old Testament. So there's significance in Abraham paying this to Melchizedek and not a Levitical priest. So what's true of Melchizedek in that historical literary scene is absolutely true of Jesus. Jesus and his priesthood is superior and has the primacy over Abraham, the Old Testament law, the Aaronic priesthood, and the Levites. There's a clear depiction that Jesus supersedes and transcends the exclusivity of the nation of Israel. Jesus is saying, I'm like Melchizedek. That's what we're supposed to get from the author of Hebrews. Jesus is like Melchizedek, and he is offering this priesthood to the world. It's beyond the nation of Israel. It's beyond the priest system. It's beyond the law. All of that's been augmented. All of that changes. Now we have a new priest in Jesus, and he's like that Melchizedek guy that we know just a little bit about. So we get to the meat here, all right? Why does this matter? This is the, the, the biggest thing for me, okay? Many a sermon lands the plane at this point. Many a sermon says, isn't that interesting? It kind of tickles my mind, makes me think literary, theological thoughts. That guy's kind of strange, Melchizedek. What's happening? But we miss the point of what the author of Hebrews is driving to in the rest of the chapter. And so that's where I want to have a step into to get the point of this. The author of Hebrews doesn't leave us here. There's a point to this comparison, all right? As we think about the comparison, why Melchizedek and Jesus' comparison matters to us, okay? So if I said you're as quiet as a mouse, or maybe someone is as poor as a church mouse, right? I make that comparison. We could spend a little time talking about a mouse is, what kind of mouse it looks like, what's the point, talk about what poor means, talk about what quiet means. But then at some point, I have to get to the point of why am I using that comparison for the subject, Why is that the point that I'm making? That's what the author of Hebrews does here in the remainder of this chapter in verses 11 through 19 of chapter 7. And he he builds this point to make, to tell us that Jesus is our priest now and forever. And that's described throughout this chapter. So let's look at this together. First of all, we need no other priest but Jesus right now. Perfection couldn't come from a priesthood where the guy making the sacrifice is just as guilty as the guy bringing the sacrifice. Not going to work. A system that has to have a new priest every few years because the last one died, it's not a good system. But in fact, the priesthood has changed. Jesus is a priest, not in the order of the Levites. But everything has changed. And now like Melchizedek, we have a priest with a capital P in Jesus. His right or credibility of his office says it's because of his indestructible life. I feel like I want to just read this from from Hebrews chapter 7, get us a bigger, bigger picture of this. Let me read these words. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So Jesus, as our priest, means the system and access to God has actually changed. Instead of killing a lamb, going to the temple, blood sacrifice, these Levites, it's completely changed because there's a new priest. We have a better hope now because of that. A better hope for access and nearness to God is a mark of this new priesthood. And Jesus is strong and effective in bringing us to God. Sometimes in all this priest talk, it can feel like, what's the point? Okay, priests might be kind of a strange concept to you, or it might be something you're a little bit more familiar with, but what, what's the point of a priest? What are we doing? We're saying that there's something lacking. There's some part, a gap, a missing point between us and God. That's not wrong. It's in every major religion. It exists throughout all your study of the history of religions. There's an understanding that there's a God, and then there's us, and there's some way that we have to bridge that gap. And how do we get there? Well, people do lots of things. They try priests as one of the main means of making up that gap. They say, okay, there's God who's not like me, and there's all of us who aren't good enough, and how do we make up that gap? So we think maybe if there's a special person in the middle who's a little bit better than us, who's maybe able to make up that distinction, then we can bridge that gap. Now, maybe that person isn't actually better. We can kind of do some kind of ceremony over them to try to make it seem like they're better than the rest of us. Or maybe there's some special uh, equation or ritual that we can do in order to make sure that it feels like this gap is paid up. And that's true across both ancient and modern uh, religions. But what we can't miss is that's real. That's true. That's why we try for it in every religion. In everything that man tries to come up with, it's acknowledging a true fact. The idea that there is God and we're not like him. And how do we make that up? The Catholic Church, as an example, continues to have priests thinking that there's a need to have someone to share in the priesthood of Jesus in order to bridge this gap. And the understanding that a priest can make you holy enough to receive the Eucharist and as a means of bridging that gap. But can I declare to you today, Jesus is your priest. He is the one who makes you right to have access and nearness to God. Now, don't get me wrong. You're a long ways off from God, okay? I'll I'll say the hard thing to you. You're far from God. You're not going to make it on your own. You do need someone to come in between because God is holy and you're a sinner. You do the wrong thing. But you don't get another person to get you to God. No, Jesus, who is God, brings you to God the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it the best of anything, so I'll quote the passage, saying quite clearly, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And this is the belief of the New Testament. This is the distinct hope of Christianity, that it's not you and some other person standing between you and God. The idea is that you and God, that God had reached to you with Jesus And that is how you have relationship and access to God. And no other religion lays it out that clearly. So it's incredible to think that Jesus has died for us. And he is the priest giving us that access and relationship with God. So you don't need a human priest to take you to God. You don't need the Aaronic priesthood, the Israelite Levitical priests. You don't need the Catholic church. You don't need Matt Cruz or Tim Barker taking you to God. Jesus is your priest. He is the one that takes you to the Father. You have him after the order of Melchizedek. So we have to think about how, so we don't have to think about how we have to approach God. We have a better hope 
because we have a better priest. Feel this. Can you think about it? You can approach God and have relationship and access with Him. There's no need for another person. You need only look to one man, Jesus Christ, the God-man who is God in flesh and who has made the way for us to come to God. So we need no other priest but Jesus right now. But then most powerfully, we need no other priest but Jesus ever. This points to the eternality of Jesus as our priest. Eternality is a mark of this new priesthood that it goes on and on and on. Jesus is the guarantor or certainty of this better priesthood and it's eternal. It took many priests to do the job in the Old Testament in Israel. They would die off. There wouldn't be permanency. But Jesus is our permanent priest and continues forever. So hear these words from Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus' work following the cross, now he's in heaven with the Father. And in theology, we call this the session of Christ. That he is seated, and he is there next to the Father. And he is working. He is taking us before the Father. He is praying. He is interceding for us. He is not inactive. He's not laying on some cloud somewhere, eating grapes. Jesus is working as a priest for you. It's kind of like in geometry. This gets to anybody, those people who didn't like the history part. So you think about a ray. You have a function in time, a certain point, and then it goes on to infinity in one direction. That's what Jesus' priesthood is like. It starts with his work, the Christ event of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And then his priestly work continues on forever. Why does that matter? Why does it change things? It means that your sins now and forever are forgiven. It means your sin is never going to outlast Jesus' priestly work on your behalf. You know that thing you did five years ago? that you feel probably pretty bad about and you wish you didn't do it and you hope no one really finds out about it? Jesus is your priest for that. You know the fourth time that you've looked at porn this month, the upteenth time that you fought with your spouse, that second furtive glance you had at an attractive coworker, the latest realization that you're a lousy parent? Jesus is your priest for that. Not just in the past for the dumb and the sinful things of your past or your foibles and follies and failings of the present. No, Jesus is your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Can you believe that? As bad as you've been in the past and as bad as you could ever be in the future, Jesus is still covering you and interceding for you before the Father. You know, sometimes we've done something really bad in our past, and sometimes it comes up to mind, you feel guilty about it. That's, that's the work of, of the Spirit. That's good things at times, that you're recognizing fault and sin. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's an unhealthy reminder of something that you should have already accepted forgiveness over, that you've moved on with and you need to believe Jesus for. But you know what happens is we have memories, right? And memories are this way, it's, it's an amazing thing when you think about it. It takes the past and it brings it into the present so you can experience it again and again and again. Sometimes that's awesome, and sometimes it's haunting. The guilt, the pain, the hurt continues. But you know what's amazing is we have verses in the Bible 
like 1 John 1, 9, that tells us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and Jesus will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a great thing. Past action of Jesus makes an impact in my present life. But then hear these words of 725 from Hebrews. That Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. This means completely or for all time. There's never a stop to Jesus being our priest and saving us. He saves us in the future. Ongoing work from that first time and moment. And those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, because Jesus didn't stay dead. He's, that picture of Melchizedek continuing on in his priesthood. Sherlock Holmes, who just never seems to fade off the scene. Jesus continues his priestly work. And he always lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus saves us for all time, for all our sins, both now and forever in the future. So as long as your sins persist, and Jesus functions as our priest, beyond our perpetual sins, past our perpetual guilt. Jesus is our forever priest and is able to save to the uttermost. That is why Jesus matters, that he is in the order of Melchizedek. That's our big idea. Jesus is our eternal priest, and that's wildly awesome and vital to how we live. So in conclusion, if you haven't trusted Jesus to be your priest, to take you to God, believe today. Don't leave today without speaking to someone, talking about it, understanding more, turning to the scriptures. You know in your bones that you can't reach God. And every major religion of the world talks about that gap and tries to figure out how to make it up. And Christianity is the one that says, no, God fixed it himself because he gave us Jesus as our priest. No other human could get it done. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And those who have trusted in Jesus already as your priest, Live like it. Are you struggling with accepting forgiveness of God because of a sin? Go to Jesus as your priest and believe he is able to save to the uttermost. Are you feeling distant from God? You feel like you can't even really approach him in prayer or feel his presence with you. Go to Jesus as your priest. Know that he is praying for you. He is interceding. He is taking you before the Father. So even when you feel you can't, Jesus is doing that for you. Believe that. Accept it. So I hope you find that the comparison with Melchizedek is actually incredibly relevant. It's incredibly important for how we live on a day-to-day basis. And the news of this kind of forgiveness that comes from Jesus as our priest doesn't drive us to go, wow, I can just keep on sinning and this guy will just forgive me for whatever. No. To see that kind of grace, to see that kind of love, How do you not respond in repentance and say, wow, I am going to fight to live more holy. I'm going to continue to go in this way, but I know that I have a priest in Jesus forever. Jesus, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, means Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Let's pray. God, let us receive these words in faith. God, that you would enliven our hearts to believe and let it transcend our struggles, our problems, to drive us further to you. God, that we would love you and know you as our priest. The only way that we find you, the only way we get to God. And God, you help us with our past sins in the present, and you will be with us in the future for all of our failings, God. You will not let us go. Amen.